We continue to kind of make our way through the gospel of Mark. And as we do that, you'll remember Jesus fed 5,000 men. And then he dismissed the crowds and he sent his disciples straight out onto the sea into a storm. Deliberately. Because he was growing their faith and he was growing their understanding. Here's one of the things that you've learned maybe already in the gospel of Mark and other gospels. Not everything flows according to chronology. And so when you pick up today, you're finding a place where it is a theme that is essential, not necessarily that it came right after the calming of the storm and walking on water. What's Jesus introducing? What's Mark introducing? The concept of defilement in order to show that salvation is not simply for Jews, but it's also for the Gentiles like you and me. And that's actually the direction that the gospel is headed straight to the cross. And it's a fast-moving gospel. If the religions of the world are populated by external ceremonies, the gospel of Christ is a matter of the heart. God is far more interested with the inner heart than with the outer dwelling of ritual. Let's uh, take a look at chapter 7. We're going to read verse 1 through 23. And while we read, I'll just remind you that this is God's true and real word. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. And then this bracket that Mark gives to explain to his Roman audience. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites. As it's written, The people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandments of God and hold to the traditions of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then, you're no longer, you, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother. Thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled. Thus, he declared all foods clean. And he said, whatever comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting. Wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, 
pride, foolishness, all these things come from within and they defile a person. This is God's word. Let's pray for his help. Father, through the week and through the times that I've looked at this passage, you've caused me to to have to wrestle with you in a way that is has been uncomfortable and difficult for me. Um, And I pray now that 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 wrestling would be for the good of your people. Uh, These who hear and these who will hear and even for my own heart. Would you show us the Lord Jesus and give us great help and comfort from your word. It's in his name we pray. Amen. How do moralism and legalism enter the church? And then how do these twin distortions thrive in your own heart? Jesus seems to say that moralism and legalism springs up in the church just as it did when the, with the Pharisees. When your horizontal glare becomes more pronounced than your vertical stare. Six times in the passage we just read, this word defile or defiled is used, and yet the Pharisees and the crowd seem to think about defilement very differently than Jesus does. The the difference is summed up like this, externals versus internals, lip service versus heart service. And so Mark, who explains a Jewish tradition, a Jewish illustration for his Roman audience, speaks about something that you and I would go, well, that seems pretty ancient, pretty distant. But Mark says, no, it's actually relevant in every age. And that is that men and women don't value what God values, which is why moralism and legalism is the hallmark of every man-made religion in the world. But it's also a snare which true, genuine, humble believers might be susceptible to. External observation over inner humility of the heart. How could that possibly happen for Christians? I mean, you are the people who say, I mean, I need a Savior. Yeah, I'm a sinner. Well, when you understand the Pharisees, you understand how this could happen to people like us. It is simple. It begins with the presumption that defilement is out there. And if defilement is out there, then I can avoid every thought that somewhere in here I am unclean. And by keeping defilement out there, I lose sight of my own personal need for grace. How do you recognize legalism in your own heart and in your church? You look for a condemning spirit within you, the kind that that blinds you to your own heart condition before the Lord. And then you maybe take a a thumb and place it on the the pulse of your heart and and ask yourself, "Do do I notice an inner coldness, a kind of pride? In this text, Jesus teaches us to treasure what God treasures, not outward expressions. God desires the heart. So we're going to have three Three uh, points this morning. Vain washings, 
hypocritical holiness, and then finally, humble application. We're going to start with vain washings. Because the text is kind of long, you'll just notice I'm going to go at a little bit higher level on this point. It's tempting to look at the Pharisees and just to simply think that they are acting crazy, that they are obsessive, perhaps. But you need to remember that Jesus constantly represents a threat to their own perception of authority. So they came out to check on Jesus, and the very first thing they notice is he doesn't require his disciples to keep the traditions of the elders. Now, what does that mean? Well, there was actual Old Testament law, like what God really did command in the Scriptures. And then there was what was called the halakha, or halakha, which means fence, And over the the centuries, perhaps with really good intentions, religious leaders of Judaism sought to erect these various fence laws around God's actual word because we don't want our people to get too close to breaking God's law. One of those fence laws pertained to washing. What did the Old Testament ceremonial law actually command concerning these washings? Well, it was primarily for priests. So before making atoning sacrifice for himself, for the sins of God's people, the priest washes himself before he goes into the tabernacle or the temple. What was God trying to show in that Old Testament ceremonial law? He's trying to say, well, only one who is is truly perfectly clean can approach a holy God and can atone for sin. It It was a picture that was meant to constantly point to the need for the Christ. One who's perfectly clean in heart and mind to offer not a lamb but himself as a sacrifice to pay for the sins of God's people. And truly what began innocently enough with a a good doctrine that we should all live our lives the way the priests do before the face of God and, and, and seek to live in holiness towards him. Well, if washing hands can make a priest clean, then wouldn't it not would it not honor God for all of us to to purify ourselves that way and then from there the system grew and grew and so you come to Jesus' day and and a faithful Jew follows the traditions of the elders by washing his hands before every meal but also verse 4 cups, pots, copper vessels dining couches let's be super clear this is the ancient world so they are not concerned with microorganisms. They're not washing hands to make sure they get rid of bacteria. They're not trying to avoid germs. They're trying to deal with spiritual impurity and a real sense that they have it. Now, before we would dismiss the Pharisees as crazy religious zealots, you need to realize that all they were trying to do is deal with genuine guilt. Because if you understand, like they understood, that there really is a holy God, that we are not holy the way He is, and we feel a true sense of being defiled and unclean before Him, what are you going to do about that? How are you going to deal with the fact and, and the very real feeling and the knowledge that somewhere deep down, I, I, I really am spiritually defiled? You might say the diagnosis was correct, but the prescribed cure was wrong. They tried to deal with this inner sense of defilement by outward means. And so all of these fence laws became in the minds 
of well-meaning people, a measurable way to cope with legitimate feelings of guilt before God. Are people guilty before God? Yes. Do all God's people have a nagging sense that they're guilty before God? Does everybody under creation have a nagging sense? Somewhere deep down, yes. But think about why this was so appealing. If you can remember and just keep those external laws, it would, it would feel in some ways like a band-aid that would provide for you a false sense that your guilt is somehow covered. And then it would be easy for that person to reason, hey, look, look around. At least I'm doing something about this. Others are guilty just like I am. They're just as defiled, but they aren't doing anything about it. So that those became the kind of thoughts that were seeds in their hearts that grew into spiritual pride. And over time, as people became less and less familiar with the actual Bible, they became more and more familiar with the teachings of the elders. And the further you get away from the actual Word of God, the more vain washings of some variety to cover your sense of of guilt. Which is why I say that all of the man-devised religions of the entire world consist of external practices. Because the external observance is really the default mode of the human heart. Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, they are all filled with various bowings and vestments of clothing, washings, pilgrimages, repetitious prayers in certain directions. But you see that same pull for the external is what caused the Roman Catholic Church to begin to try to quantify repentance with some outward rituals. Because just like the Pharisees of Jesus' day, when the traditions of the, of the church rise to the same level as the Word of God, then you're left listening to the tradition of men. And how appealing. I feel dirty. Well, you can wash I wonder if you can see why even well-meaning Christians like us have different ways of doing the same thing. Meaning trying to get rid of that inward sense of defilement and guilt with external measures. How do you answer that voice that is in your head that whispers, you really are gross. You're defiled. You're not enough. For some of you, you, you say things to other people so that you can either tear them down and feel infinitely better about yourself or you want to puff them up in case you need them later on to do something for you down the road. You might manipulate others with a deceptive smile on your face or you fight to be with the right people because appearances matter, right? It's external. It's all he sees. It's all she sees. And, and you want others to see you in a powerful light and think well of you so that you can try to cover over your own sense of being inadequate. And others deal with those guilty, defiled feelings by outward accomplishment. And so you live and die by what you accomplish or what you fail to accomplish, whether it's in the classroom or at work or on campus. And it's the reason that no matter how many successes you have, no matter how many times the world affirms you, you still don't really feel 
affirmed. Others of you might look at this. When you feel guilty about what you've eaten or about what you've done, you hit the gym in order to operate on the external. I can maybe fix the the outward body. But for you, it's not so much about being healthy. It's, It's actually because that's one place where you think, I could possibly grab control there. So that even if I feel defiled on the inside, hopefully with enough exercise, I can soothe the sense of guilt and defilement that I feel within my heart. That's why some of you feel guilty if you eat normal food. Because when you have an almond for lunch and a leaf of lettuce for dinner, and you say, no, only organic for me, no processed food, and perhaps I can control the outside, even if I can't feel better on the inside those may not be your vain washings but what are yours how do you deal with the internal sense of being defiled what are you outwardly working on what are you inwardly clinging to to provide you with a sense of relief over guilt or power over it. Listen, friends, the diagnosis is right. The prescription was wrong. Apart from the cleansing of Christ, you are defiled, you are guilty, you are unclean. That's what the Bible says, but it also says you can't cleanse yourself with externals. God desires your heart, so we've covered vain washings. Now let's talk about hypocritical holiness. Now listen, I'm going to be super clear. It is not that Jesus' disciples kind of got lax about these laws. It is that Jesus said, no, we're not doing that. And so the implication of the question that the Pharisees ask him is, hey, Jesus, if you proclaim to be yourself a teacher with some kind of authority, then how come you've deliberately taught your boys to forego all of the traditions of the elders and Jesus says verse 6 well Isaiah prophesied about you hypocrites this people honors me with their lips but their heart is far from me in vain do they worship me teaching as doctrines the commandments of men you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men look the, the indictment of Jesus falls under the umbrella of honoring God But you see, mankind isn't listening to God's perspective on the matter of how to honor Him. Instead, mankind devises systems and rules and patterns that make us feel like we're honoring God. Jesus decisively refuses to obey the teachings of the elders because they have ignored the very commands of God, which He gave for His own honor. Jesus always obeys the commands of God. But traditions that go beyond God's word, not a chance. Jesus gives one example that, of many that he could give. Verse 10, 
Honor your father and your mother. Whoever reviles father or mother must surely die, Jesus says. That's what the Bible actually says. But then your tradition comes along behind God's word, verse 11. If a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corbin, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down. Look, the the Corbin principle was basically this. Everything I have belongs to God. The whole of it. It's all devoted to Him, which seems like such a noble principle at first. But let's say something happens to your aging parents. They have an unexpected illness or or they lose all their savings and then suddenly mom and dad find themselves in a desperate financial place. Well, Jesus says, you know, the heart of the the fifth commandment wasn't actually about seven-year-olds being able to say, yes, mommy, I will go get some water for family dinner. It was actually about this concept that the 40-year-old would know that he needs to care for his mom and dad when things are tough. See, those who embrace this Corbin idea were outwardly binding themselves to this grand declaration that was irrevocable. Well, look, I would like to be able to help mom and dad out, but I already devoted everything else to my parent, I mean, to God. And Jesus says, you know, it's all hypocritical holiness. Because with your lips you honor God as your heart pulls away. And those traditions which you hold so dear are all full of that kind of hypocrisy. Mark is a super efficient writer. It's the shortest of the Gospels. So the kinds of things that he includes, you should know they were meant to be passed down to the church. And they were meant to be carried on to shape where God's people should place their emphasis. And here it is. God's word must always be the rule to determine how we, as God's people, honor him. And though none of us is immune from hypocritical holiness, it's always easier to see it in the lives of other people than it is to see in yourself. I bet you've seen some of these examples. You know a girl who likes to post pictures of her Bible open and her journal and her pen laying out beside it. And she's got her cute coffee mug there. And and on her Instagram post, she puts some pithy Christian-sounding phrase overlaying that whole beautiful background scene. And it's perfect for Instagram. And it communicates, this is where my heart is. But you go, I know that that girl is wild as a buck. And her hypocritical holiness is obvious to you. Or some of you know that guy who constantly talks about that Christian camp that he worked at last summer. How cool it was. And you get the sense that he wants you to also think that he's a really awesome guy. But you've watched him from a distance for a long time. And whatever lip service he seems to give... His inconsistency is nauseating to you. And let's be clear, those really are scenarios that are indicative of of hypocritical holiness, the kind that you might find around a college campus. 
But if that's not your type of hypocrisy, Jesus would invite you to take your own heart and to lay it under the microscope. Lord, how do I honor you with my lips while my heart is far from you? For me, it would be unnoticed pride. It would be an unforgiving spirit. It would be an unwillingness to let go of a perceived slight. Because you see, I come from a a long-standing tradition that tells me that my pride is well-deserved because I really am right. That that unforgiving spirit, well, it's justified because other people really probably do deserve that. You see, it's voices of tradition. It's voices of my family or my story that tell me those lies. Let's take it from a personal level to the church level. There are always various camps, traditions in the Christian world that strike one note to the exclusion of another or they play one particular note more loudly than they do the others. So take a church which leans politically liberal. They will place the emphasis on things like greed and materialism, on care for the poor. They'll deal with issues of of prejudice And they will say, those are the things that the church needs to address. And then in the name of the honor of God, there's a a group of people who are ready to, to line up and champion those issues. Whereas churches who lean politically conservative will emphasize gross moral failures. They'll talk about adultery and sexual immorality and and heresy. And in the name of honoring God, people like me are ready to champion those issues. Jesus would say those issues matter. They're a part of God's word. But what if I let my outward lip service, my zeal to honor God, cause me to miss the rest of the heart of God? My point is actually not political. You've been here long enough, you know. I don't talk politics but but please friends don't miss the forest for the trees my point is Jesus's point that your desire to honor God means that you and I would learn to let the Bible speak with all of its balanced nuance with all the multifaceted wonder that it holds so even if my world affirms the collection of wealth which is not in itself a bad thing do I have any place in my ear that is capable of hearing an appropriate biblical warning against the materialistic longings of my heart. Even if you come from a world that affirms confidence and self-certainty, which are not in themselves wrong, do you have any place in your ear where you could hear an appropriate biblical warning against pride? Jesus says, in your love and your zeal for God, don't miss the heart of God by by listening more intently to the voice of your tradition. Whether it comes from your family, your particular line of church, or the culture around you. The Bible says, God desires your heart. And so we've covered vain washings and hypocritical holiness. We're going to close with humble application. 
Here's what happened. The Pharisees regulated sin to all things external, which gave them the appearance of removing it from their souls. So later Jesus calls the crowd to himself when the Pharisees are gone. Verse 15, hey, there's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of the person are what defile him. And later you can tell the disciples still don't really quite understand. And so they ask him again. And he says, verse 18, do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled Mark says, thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. See, in the outward Old Testament ceremonial laws, God used a particular picture that some foods are clean and other foods were unclean in order to teach a larger point. That if you and I would be those who would follow the Lord, our lives would be set apart as holy unto the Lord. There was never anything wrong with bacon in itself. God was just trying to teach a larger point. But here again, like hand washing, men and women began to think of defilement as if it was outside of them, which is why here Jesus traces the ultimate source of defilement to the heart. And you and I go, oh, that's cool. No, friends, this is absolutely monumental. And Mark says it's forever applicable. Sin is not actually a result of your environment. It is a result of the evil within your own heart. That does not mean that external pressures and things out there cannot take the spark of sin within your heart and and fan it into a blazing flame. For sure, that can happen. But Jesus says, let's be clear. It didn't start out there. It starts in here. Now, why does that matter? Because if you relegate defilement and guilt as outside of you, you can absolutely avoid it and thereby avoid any sense that you need forgiveness for your actual sins. And when you avoid a need for sins, you can avoid Christ. Moreover, if you begin to think that you have mastered it, okay, I've I've kept all those defiling things away from me, then what is inwardly growing in you becomes pride. And your soul might be in very deep peril, but you'd never even know it. And moreover, as you grow in pride, you start to look at others around you. And you start to evaluate the externals that they seem to display or not. Compared to you, I promise you, you will always find them lacking. And that's because you're the only judge in your own head. Which is why Jesus takes it straight to the heart. He says, your greatest danger is not out there. It's right in here. And this point could probably be the key to understanding the entire gospel. With humble application. It could also be the key to missing the gospel entirely. Because when you believe that what defiles you comes from outside, you begin to grow in pride. But when you look at the list that Jesus lays out in verses 21 and 22, and you say, Holy Spirit, would you show me this in my own heart? It's it's actually meant to lay you bare before the watching eye of God. And Jesus says, look, what's in your heart? 
evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, foolishness, pride. All these things come from within and they defile a person. And so you might say that Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, now you're ready to receive the gospel. There's good news. But first, I have to bring you to the place of humility so that you will know your need for a Savior because God desires your heart. So the diagnosis is correct. Standing alone, you really are defiled. You really are guilty. But as Paul says in 1 Timothy, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. When you have this, you have Christ. When you miss this, you miss the gospel. And when you miss the gospel, you spend your life trying to cover over your own guilt in your own way. Here's a church, I believe, of sincere, humble believers. How do you take a a big passage like this and apply it to your own life? I'm going to borrow some of these from another pastor. Number one, sin really does defile you. You should avoid it because it will twist you and it will eat away at you and it will alienate you. You really must run from it. Number two, make sure that the only feelings of guilt which disturb you deep in your heart are those for which you've actually broken God's law. In other words, don't let the tradition of elders or human agendas or commercials on TV of starving dogs in some hinterlands of China add a kind of guilt to you that goes beyond what the Scripture actually says. Moreover, don't let the fact that you're finite, that you're incapable of pleasing everyone, that you're incapable of accomplishing everything in a day make you feel guilty. Because the unfiltered beauty of the Bible, in fact of the gospel, this is actually deeply liberating. Some of you are carrying unbiblical guilt over things that your family idolizes or your culture idolizes, over what you had for lunch, over whether you've achieved enough, been affirmed enough by other people. Jesus says you can lay aside all of those voices of human guilt, but listen closely to what the Bible really does warn you about. There's bigger issues in your heart. Number three and finally, If you are in Christ by faith, the Bible speaks quite differently than how you feel about yourself. In fact, in Christ, your defilement is spoken of as in the past. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul lists this huge list of very defiling sins, the kind of sins that would be worthy of keeping you out of the kingdom of heaven. He lists sexual immorality, adultery, idolatry, homosexuality, theft, greed, even drunkenness. And then Paul says, and such were some of you. That's who you were. But he says, in Christ, you were washed, 
You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. He says you actually have a new identity. In Christ you are a new creation. Why are you a new creation? Because God desired your heart. And he went and he changed it. Praise God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that your spirit would send your word forth and that you would do the work in our hearts that we so desperately need you to do. The places for which we need correction and training and rebuke. We ask that your word really would cut sharper than a two-edged sword and pierce deeply to soul and joints and marrow. Father, would you transform us from the heart outward? We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.